Hello, everybody. I am Jules Ugmund, and you're listening to the Introducing Indie Authors podcast, where we'll be talking to indie authors from all over the world and chat about book releases, writerly things, and the publishing process. Hello, everybody. We are here today with Trevor Dutcher, the author of the steampunk novel Michael McGillicuddy and the Most Amazing Race. And um, Trevor is our uh, third guest in the Introducing Indie Authors podcast, and we'll be chatting about his debut novel, his upcoming projects, and the writing process. Trevor, to just start with a very simple question, when did you begin your writing journey? Yeah, that was about uh, four years ago. 2016, I was just on vacation with my family and, uh, you know, totally unplugged from work and had an idea um, uh, to write a book and, and just started writing. Never really had any endeavors prior to that, uh, but glad that I got started. So you never, ever wrote before anything? Uh, no, I really didn't. Um, I'd thought about it kick some ideas around. I had little vignettes in my mind, but never really tried to write a book. And this one just stuck with me and I couldn't not write it. Okay. So was was there an inciting event or did it just like pop into your head and, hey, I'm your novel, please write me. <laughs> it, it, it was gradual. Um, you know, we were on vacation. We were down in uh, Universal Studios and uh, we're, we're actually sitting in Harry Potter world. And I was kind of looking around and, you know, just marveling at the land itself. And I thought, you know, somebody had an idea and they wrote a book and books became movies and merchandise and it became a global phenomenon. And now I'm, I'm sitting here in a theme park uh, designed around this book. That's pretty phenomenal. Like what would happen if I wrote a book? And, and if I wrote a book, what would the book be about? And I just, you know, I had nothing else on my mind and I was just kind of spitballing and coming up with ideas. And, you know, I'd, sort of been interested in this steampunk genre and you know just had a few images in my mind more vignettes and uh, I just couldn't stop thinking about it and you know spent several more days thinking up characters and what might take place in this book and what it might be about and uh, driving home from LA I just kind of was daydreaming and well shouldn't be daydreaming but I was <laughs> thinking about it and uh, while I was driving and I, I just looked at my wife and I said you know I'm I'm gonna write a book she just sort of shrugged and said yeah okay there's quite a huge uh, cast in your book there's quite a lot of characters and uh, I have to admit when I first started reading it I was like well will I be able to like keep track of all of them and it worked surprisingly well um, ah, thank you so uh how how did you come up with the characters? Are they like um, complete figments of your imagination, or did you base them on somebody? How how do you create a character? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I, I I like I'm a very visual person, and I I take in a lot of visual stimulation. So you know sometimes in I I would have a need for a character somebody had to do something and I would just get on Pinterest and kind of scroll through images. And sometimes you see an image that grabs you and you, you kind of see something in somebody's eyes or the way, you know, their heads tilted, they look a little bit devious. And I, I just kind of sit there and, and imagine what that person is like. And sometimes it works out. Sometimes, you know, it just doesn't work. But a lot of my characters were just sort of me looking at pictures, figuring out what that person might be like. And that becomes a character in my book. So do you have actual face cast 
could you like show me a picture of, for example, Beatrix? Yes, I could. It, it's interesting. I actually um, saved some of the images and built a Pinterest folder so you could actually see a lot of the characters. I wonder if you could pick them out by looking at them. That would be interesting, like to have like a, a sort of a memory thing to like, which character is that? Which character is this? I love this. You should put that up somewhere where people can play with it. It is there. I can send you a link if that would be helpful. Yeah, I would love to have the link. We can link it sure. below the <laughs> below the post and then people can have a look at your book and then they can have a look at that and try to find out who is who. Um, that would be amazing. I only finished your book like a day ago. I have to admit that it took me ages to finish it after I like read through most of it in like one go and then I got distracted and real life happened and stuff happened and work happened and well. But yeah. I really, really loved the showdown with the Cubetta. Mm -hmm. I think this is something that might be interesting for people who, who listen to us. Um, would you like to give them a bit of an insight into what it is? Yeah, it, it's a complex game. Think of it as a board game, but it's played not necessarily on a checkerboard, but a three-dimensional cube. And the checkerboard starts out as a flat surface. And, and the game pieces are not necessarily chess pieces or checkers, but they're automatons. They're little robots that people build and design. And, you know, there's a lot of pride in the ownership and pride in creativity for the people that play the game. And they, they build their own game pieces. And, uh, you know, if you've ever played battle chess, the pieces move towards each other and you don't just check and you don't just take a piece. The pieces actually fight on the game board. Um, these little mechanical automatons uh, that have, you know, sledgehammer weapons or sword weapons or piercing weapons. And they, they do battle on the game board and uh, winner takes all. It's kind of like marbles. If, if I beat you in a round, I take your piece and I can use it for scrap. What's really interesting about Cubetta is it's not just a two-dimensional game. Uh, it, it's a three-dimensional game that the board starts out flat and there's a crank on the side of the, the game box and you turn it and that the, the checkerboard sort of changes levels. Each square can go up or down. Uh, there's three levels in the game, you know, from flat, up a cube, up two cubes, up three cubes. And as the levels change on each turn, you can only move to a square that's on the same level and you can only engage with pieces are on the same level. So you may be safe one round and completely surrounded in the next round. It all depends on the turn of the crank. It sounds like really, really complicated chess in a way, because um, Michael, the, your main character, he, is, he seems to be extremely clever and also like a little bit socially awkward. And uh, right at the beginning, when they are watching people play this, when, when there's the first introduction of Cubetta in, in, in the story, he can predict what will happen in like the next move or two moves ahead after figuring out there's an actual pattern to how the levels rise and fall. I would really, really like to see you better in real life, I have to admit. I, I got really interested in it. I would like to play it. There's the, um, the robot championships. So we could just use the robots from the robot championships and put them on a Cubetta board. <laughs> I think that's a great idea. And you're, you're exactly right. It, it, it has sort of the, the, the notion of, of seeing several moves ahead, but not only 
anticipating what the what your opponent's going to do, but also how the level sets change in the board. So it's a whole new dimension to to trying to read the board. Uh, you hit the nail right on the head. I've I've actually I, I would love to see it as a game as well. I've kind of come up with some concepts. One using an iPad to sort of simulate the level sets and just playing it on a checkerboard. Uh, the other is I would love to bring this game to life. Um, and I've got an idea of how to do it and actually have a 3D board. I just don't have the mechanical aptitude to do it. But <laughs> hopefully someday somebody can figure it out because it could be a lot of fun. As this was your first book, um, it might still change because sometimes people swap from one to the other. But would you consider yourself to be a plotter or a pantser? Oh, I am a plotter to a fault. Um, it took me a long time to sit down and outline the book start to finish. And, and it kind of came in pieces and pieces moved around like something may have been a very early scene and it ended up being a later scene. But this was all done in sort of an outline bullet point format. And it wasn't until, you know, I could really see the entire vision of the book start to finish that I really put pen to paper and started writing the, uh, the narrative around it. Michael McGillicuddy and the Most Amazing Race is self-published. Um, did you consider Treadpub before going down that route, or was it always clear that you wanted to go indie? It took a lot of thought, and really, when I set out to write the book, it was not meant to be a commercial endeavor at all. It was, I just wanted to see if I could write a book, and I, I actually finished it and started writing another and just put it on a shelf with no real intent to publish at all. I just wanted to see if I could, but you know, my wife read it and some friends read it and they liked it. And they're like, this is actually a good book. You should publish it. So, you know, I looked into it and I thought I wanted to try traditional publishing. I, I you know, if you want to publish through Trad, you have to essentially get an agent and you have to go through the query process. So I queried, oh, I don't know, 50, 60, 70 agents over the course of several months and, and got some very polite rejection letters. And it was clear that, you know, that was not going to be the route for me. Or if it was, I would have to wait a really long time for somebody to pick it up. So, you know, I was excited about it. People liked it. I wanted to get it out there. I wanted other people to read it. So that's when I made the decision to just go ahead and uh, self-publish. There's a few things that you can, like, do better in self-publishing with the whole book still being yours and mm -hmm. nobody interfering with it. You can decide what it's going to look like. You can decide what stays in, what doesn't, who does the editing and so on. But there's one aspect of it, which is like the breaking point for many. And this is marketing. I've heard of so many people who said like, yeah, I, I have to go trad because I'm rubbish at marketing my own stuff. So how do you feel about that? Are you, are you fine with doing that? Or do you feel like it eats up all of your time or? <laughs> yeah. I won't say that I like marketing. It, it's, it's, it's a means to an end. And I'm probably not terribly good at it either. But, you know, it's, it's sort of a, a self-feeding loop. Like you do a little bit of promotion and, and somebody says, hey, I bought your book. And that's, that's nice feedback. And then they review it and they say, hey, I liked your book. And that's, that's nice feedback. So I, I want more of that. So it causes me to go out and market more and then um, you know, it just turns into a loop. I don't know that I'm terribly good at it or that I enjoy it. It's just something to keep the book moving. I don't do a whole lot. I'm on Twitter. Um, I'm in some Facebook groups. I buy some Amazon advertising. And, and that's, that's about the extent of my capabilities and available time. 
I think what also sells a book is always the cover. And I have to admit, I picked yours up because of the cover. Um, I saw an advert on, on Twitter and then I was like, yeah, I actually want to read that. So uh, who did your cover and how did you find them? Yeah, so uh, I fell in love with that cover. It was an existing work by a French artist named Didier Griffet. And he is a bit of uh, a, a celebrity in steampunk art. He's He's done some amazing work. And I was about midway through the book and I happened upon that image, just looking for images and considering covers. And I immediately thought that has to be my cover. It, it was a bit of a process to, to get the rights. You know, he was in, in France and, you know, I had to find his website and email him. And uh, he referred me to his rights agent. And, you know, I was only about halfway done th through the book. So we we had had a few conversations about how how to get the rights to use it for my cover and what what that would mean, and it came to a point where I finally finished the book and said, "Yeah, let's do this." And it was still, you know, they were open to it and available, and and I got the rights, and I'm, I was very excited and very happy to be able to use his art on my cover. It's a beautiful piece, and it really fits the story so well with all of of the different flying machines on it. The world building is, is really strong in, in your book, really, because you, you can imagine all of these things happening. And I have one scene that I really enjoyed for the listeners who have not read your book. There's three steps to the race. And the first one is a land leg. The second one is supposed to be done by boat. And the third one is the, the air leg, which is done by anything that flies. And uh, there's this one guy who, who decides that he'll just fly over the ocean because his boat was burned. And he uses this pedaling thing and he has to pedal the whole way across the entire English channel. And I felt so bad for him because it was so totally clear that he would be disqualified. But then on the other hand, like he, he put in so much effort. <laughs> we had a bit of a chat before we, um, we talked live on here. And um, I already told you that I really, really loved one of your characters, Belladonna. And you said that she's one of your favorites as well. I would like you to introduce people to Belladonna. She was my favorite character to write. I don't know why, but she just gripped me. Uh, she is, I think, what people will find to be one of the villains in the book. And she is a very complex, complicated individual with, with a lot of issues. You know, she's, I don't want to tell too much. But she, she's, she's fallen in with a crew that is not a very good crew, not to her, not to anybody around them. And uh, she's sort of pressured into doing things that perhaps she doesn't feel right about, but she doesn't feel that she has any choice. Uh, she's a bit of an enforcer for a larger villain in the book. And um, she, she does some very interesting things I think readers will find. The question is from... The ending, I gather there's more to come. There is more to come. I am working on an outline for a sequel. I'm trying to figure out now if it's going to be a duology or a trilogy. So I'm kicking around those ideas. But I do have some new characters. I've got some really, I, I think, fun and fascinating and, and maybe mind-blowing twists planned for the next one. Right now, I'm working on a, a separate project, but as soon as I wrap that one up, I will definitely get straight back into uh, 
the next installment of McGillicuddy. So what's what's the other project? Tell us about it. Right now I'm working on a portal fantasy and it's it's sort of I wrote it for my younger son, my youngest son, he's twelve years old. Uh, with him in mind, it, it, it's a portal fantasy through the looking glass type of adventure uh, where a 12-year-old boy, uh, Logan Levesque, stumbles upon uh, a secret portal that goes into a, an amazing new world. And he learns uh, some family secrets and goes on quite the amazing adventure in an effort essentially to save the world from the dark forces on the backside of the portal. That sounds interesting as well. So you've branched out from more like, I, th I think McGillicuddy is YA, isn't it? I think that's the best category for it. I, I, I mean, it, you've read it, so you understand it kind of break rules and break genres and cross over a little bit. But at, it, at its core, I think it's, it's YA, but, you know, subtle enough for a younger audience and also smart and accessible for older audiences. That's already my questions um, for today for you. Um, I'm quite happy this worked out and that we could talk. So, um, yeah, I, I wish you the best of luck with your new project. And uh, I'm looking forward to reading more about Michael soon as well. I hope you'll have a great day because thank you very much for joining us. Thank and, you so much. Um, uh, listeners, you can find the link to Travis book and his favorite writing resources on the blog post. Thanks, Jules. This was Introducing Indie Authors. If you want to read Trevor's book and see what he's up to in the future, you can find all the relevant links below. If you enjoyed the interview and are yourself an indie author and would like to talk about your book and your writing process, feel free to contact me either here on Instagram or Twitter. Until next time, stay safe and healthy.